As we come to Scripture this morning and continue our worship, will you just pray with me? Let's ask God to help us now to understand and to be formed by His Word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this Word that you've given to us, and I ask, Lord, that you would use it. Please work on our minds. Please work on our hearts. Please work on our wills to want what you want, to love what you love, to think as you think, to live as you live. No doubt, Lord God, some are gathered here this morning who question that you are love. Their experience is such that they wonder whether you are the God who is, in essence, love. And I ask you, Lord, that you would cause your word, these songs, your spirit to confirm in all of our hearts that you are a God of love in ways that we couldn't even imagine. I pray that we step back again and look again at the cross of Christ and see there a love that is incomparable. Lord God, thank you so much for the love that you are showing to, to those who have been incarcerated here and you're showing that love through Jumpstart Ministry, one of our mission partners. We are so delighted with the social good that they are bringing in reducing recidivism, freeing men and women, not, not just from prison, but from sin. Thank you for how men and women are finding Christ through Jumpstart. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause their efforts to just flourish. I lift up also our brothers and sisters in Jordan and Alliance Church there. Please, Lord God, cause your gospel to continue to run. Cause your salvation, the beauty, the hope of your salvation to grow more and more, claiming more lives for your kingdom. Thank you for the work that is going on there. And I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to bless it. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. If you have a copy of Scripture, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians 4, whether in your Bible or a device or whatever you use. <clears throat> Before we get to Ephesians 4, I just need to say thanks so much to Dan Yacoviello for um, stepping in last minute. And in, in view of COVID, I feel like I have to go through my medical history because of what he said last week. It was not COVID. It was unmistakably a stomach bug. Unmistakably. I wish I had some of those symptoms. You know. Never mind. Enough that. It was a stomach bug, and I'm glad that Yako filled in. <clears throat> We're going to be in Ephesians uh, 4 here, and the chapter starts off, Ephesians 4, 1, calling us to live life worthy of Christ. This calling that Christ has put on us, live life worthy of Christ. And he has talked about unity in the church and what that looks like. And now, I don't know if your Bible has what I have in mind, just before verse 17, it talks about Christian living. The, the Christian experience, growing in Christ. And from here to the end, we're going to learn more about this Christian journey and how it affects family relationships and work relationships, and especially our own relationship with Christ and our growth in Him. So notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 17. I do have it up here, I think, yes. Ephesians 4, 17, notice here is God's word. 
With the Lord's authority, I say this. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They now have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But, but, Paul says, but, but this, that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, and then Paul gives three really strong, powerful verbs. First in verse 22, to throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. The second one, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. And the third one, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We want to tackle just that first verb this morning, throw off the old nature. The truth that I think Paul has for us this morning is this. And the first part is very obvious in a church. Follow Christ. But then Paul wants to motivate us to that by saying this and by showing us this. Don't follow the rules of your culture, whether first century Ephesus or 21st century America. He says, live no longer like the Gentiles. You know, in my, in my line of work, I meet a lot of people, and I love that about my work. And people are always introducing themselves in various ways. I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a Gamecocks fan or a Tigers fan. I'm an engineer, lawyer, physician, or whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm a Republican or Democrat or Independent or Libertarian or whatever. People are introducing themselves various ways. No one has ever said, I'm Andrew, I'm a Gentile. When I'm driving through Spartanburg, nobody has Gentile on board. <laughs> There's no stickers that have the snake that say, don't tread on Gentiles. In the world of Paul, this is the entire world. It's boiled down into two groups. There's Jews, they follow the law, they fear God. Moses and Abraham are really important to them, as is David and all the others. They're God-fearing people. And to be a Gentile is to be not that. To be anti-that. In the world of Paul, there's just two groups. And now Paul looks at these Christians in Ephesus, which is totally Gentile country, and says, no longer walk like the Gentiles. This is everybody these people know. No longer walk like the Gentiles. Paul here is using this term not in ethnic terms and not just in sort of um, demographic ways. He's using it in moral category. This is a moral category. This, for these Christians, defines their pre-Christian past. They were born in a Gentile world. They eat and sleep Gentile world. They live like Gentiles. Paul says, you've come to meet Christ no longer. No longer live as 
the Gentiles. Paul will say in Romans the same thing. Don't be conformed and pressed into the mold of your world. This culture. Don't follow the rules of the culture. Paul gives in this text at least three reasons. And I'll just be honest. It comes off as a little harsh and insensitive. But notice that he's talking to Christians and he's saying this was us in an important sense. First of all, in our text, he says, in their mindset, they are hopelessly confused. Then he says, in their relationship with the creator, with the life giver, they are alienated. They've chosen to wander away. And then he says toward the end, deep in their souls, they have developed calluses. That's the word. Developed calluses and grown insensitive to God, to who God is. And Paul is saying, this was us. This was your pre-Christian past. And it may be the journey that you're on right now. Maybe you're here as a non-Christian seeking. By the way, you are brave to come into a church on a Sunday morning. So welcome. So glad that you are here. We're 20 centuries removed from Paul, but confusion, if I'm not mistaken, confusion still reigns in our broader culture. It is known for hope being hopelessly confused. This evening, I get the privilege of talking to our students about gender. There is a great deal of confusion about gender. And not just confusion, but hopelessness. I don't know if you're aware of this, because this might not exactly be your journey, but before COVID, hopelessness was on the rise. In the culture of America that has it better than any culture in history, modern or ancient, hopelessness is on the rise. So all of a sudden, this text that is so old becomes incredibly relevant to where we are. And here's what Paul says. And if you're not a Christian, you're going to be like, whoa, I don't know if I agree with that. Just think this through. Be open to this. Paul says hopeless confusion comes in when we close our minds and harden our hearts, but in a very specific way. When we close our minds and harden our hearts against the God who is there, the life giver. We wander away from him. We choose alienation from him. We don't need him. Frankly, we don't want him. We want to do our own thing. When Paul says that this is the God of life, he's not just talking about God as he providentially reigns over us and gives us air to breathe and keeps these hearts beating. No, in Ephesians, he's already made the point that the life that he's talking about is spiritual, eternal life. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but Christ made you alive. Well, in what sense? In this sense, that the life of God is now in your soul because of Christ and what he has done for you. So that is the God of life that we in the fall in Adam chose to wander away from. Whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, this was our pre-Christian past. Before we came to meet Christ, we closed our minds to the God who is there and hardened our hearts against him. And we became calloused, it says. We lose sensitivity. And the effect of this as my translation puts it so well in verse 19, they have no sense of shame. No sense of 
shame. Now, whether you self-identify as a Gentile this morning, whether you've ever been halfway around the world to Ephesus, I think this description is still incredibly true of our broader culture. This was us. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think you'll agree with me. Our culture tends to come off as learned and enlightened and wise. It sells itself that way. But, and this is what Paul's getting after, we've closed off our minds to the grandest reality of all. God and His unfathomable cult, uh, glory. A culture tries to sell itself as sensitive to all the right things and in all the right ways, but not sensitive to the God of the Bible, insensitive to Him. And Paul says, when minds are closed off and consciences are calloused, this is the basic life trajectory of people, of us before Christ. Verse 19, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. This is the basic way of life. I get to set my own rules. Man, that feels good. That feels so good. I call the shots. Traditional rules no longer apply. I do my thing. No moral code for me. I'll carve out my own way. Thank you very much. It feels good. No need for self-restraint. I get to do what I want to do. Thank you very much. The idea is the rules no longer apply. I do as I want. And in our text, at the very end, it has this little phrase, in greed. And most people agree that it is greed that is animating all of this life trajectory of lustful pleasure and eagerly practicing every kind of impurity. Greed frees us up to start renegotiating morals and ethics and start seeing what sort of matters and what doesn't matter. I'll call that shots. I'll call that. Greed, Paul is saying here, animates everything. And it's telling. Greed is an incredible admission. It is the admission that after I have pursued this quest of satisfaction, that I'm still not satisfied. I must have more. In fact, that's the literal translation of the word greed in Greek. To have more. To want more. Just more. Greed holds out hope. Just a little more will do, but then we grow in despair. Greed is what teases our hearts, but then leaves us joyless and dull. Greed can even look very smart, very informed, but with every new acquisition, no matter what it is, there's a growing sense that none of this makes sense. It's a bottomless pit. It's endless. Greed animates everything. So when we listen to the culture, what do we learn about greed? Here's greed. Corporations are greedy. I find this funny. I'm not going to defend corporations. But if we begin to understand the risks associated with corporate life these days, all of a sudden, hoarding a lot of cash makes a lot of sense. 
But anyway, corporations are greedy. Other people are greedy and they need this sermon. <laughs> Other people are greedy. Mega rich people must be greedy. That's how you get there. And then, uh, do you remember the phrase that Michael Douglas's character has in Wall Street uh, by Oliver Stone? Greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Gordon Gecko preaches. What really is greed? If, okay, some of this might be true, but if, if the, the convenient thing about this is that it's not me. But greed is way more complicated than this. What really is greed? Well, in just a few verses, in chapter 5, verse 5 of Ephesians, Paul is going to say, greed is idolatry. It is the worship of the world. Jesus talks more against greed than all sexual sins combined. And he talks more about money, both his power and his challenges, than heaven or hell combined. One of the things that Jesus says in Luke 12, he's talking to a very broad audience, by the way, most of whom are poorer than any of us, with less upward mobility than any of us, and Jesus looks at this very diverse, economically diverse audience and says, you watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. <clears throat> the Bible talks about greed from start to finish. It talks about greed's like twin brother covetousness. It's two different words for the same thing. And there's other siblings, lust and envy. There's actually a rather rich vocabulary for greed all the way through the Bible. God thinks it's a real challenge for us. So what is greed? Maybe this can be helpful. Greed is a heart hunger that strives to create heaven right here and right now. Greed is a hunger of the heart that strives to create heaven right here and right now. It's a quest for the good life with all of its security and joy. It's a quest for the good life as my heart tells me. And it pursues a heaven of my own making, whether with God or without God. Greed says, I want heaven now, greed is world worship. Greed is this world worship. Greed strives to create heaven here. Greed gets fixated on what I can see and touch and feel and acquire. No matter what it takes, greed calls for more. Tim Keller writes about greed in a wonderful little book called Counterfeit Gods, and he calls greed a deep idol. He calls it a deep idol because in his 30 or 40 years of pastoral ministry, he had people come to him asking his pastoral help for a range of very humiliating sins. After 30 or 40 years of pastoral ministry, Keller says, no one ever came to me asking for help with greed. No one ever admitted, I'm a greedy person in need of help. 
This is why Keller says, this is one of the, the, the gods, the deep idols that we're really blinded to. In fact, he says that he taught a series on the seven deadly sins of which greed was the one, and his, one, was one of them. And his wife, genius, she's like, when you get to greed, it'll be your lowest attendance men's study. Sure enough, because nobody needed that. Scripture thinks we need it. Scripture thinks we need it for a lot of reasons. One of them is this. If you cannot be content with what you have, you will not be content with what you want. Don't you know? Like you just have to walk around the block a few times in this, in this journey and realize that the thing that promised so much whatever, status, joy, fun, whatever it is, whatever it is, it can be great things. It promised it. And it did not deliver yet again. Greed is a bottomless pit that leaves us dissatisfied, insecure, and self-absorbed. We can say that the solution to greed is, is contentment. And of course that's true. But we should go further. The only solution, as Jesus says, when he uh, denounces the, the, in the parable of the rich fool, and he says... Um, your, your soul is going to be required of you. He looks at the audience and says, beware of greed, live a life that is rich toward God. And this is the life of Christ as he lives it out. When we look at Jesus, what did he, what did he show to us? The answer to greed is to realign our hearts. It's not just a matter of how many things or what kind of, of things we have. It's realignment of our heart, our passions, and our desires like Christ to one singular desire, one singular passion that is the pleasure of God, that is God the King, living our entire lives like Christ for a world far better than this, investing our entire lives in the forever kingdom of God and of His Son, Christ. So your workplace might run on greed. Everyone around me is more power, more money, more power, more money. Paul says, no longer live as the Gentiles do. Walk away from all that. And the reason why is in verse 20, because that isn't what you learned about Christ. And Paul is now going to call us, follow Christ, not the rules of your culture. Don't let the broader culture set the rules for your values, how you measure life's worth, your own identity. Paul says, you've heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from Jesus. This is fascinating because he doesn't say, no longer live like the Gentiles and start living like a Jew. He doesn't say, no longer live like the Gentiles because you learned the law of Moses. He doesn't even say, no longer live like the Gentiles because you've learned the scriptures. Now, I'm all for the scriptures. <laughs> there should be no doubt about that. But Paul lifts up Jesus Christ as the gold standard. And he wants us to see something very particular about this. That when it comes to our relationship with Christ, it's not just that we've learned some ideas and a new moral code. No longer like the Gentiles, now this moral code. No. No, you've learned Christ. That is now the gold standard. And you've learned him. 
What a gift that this is to us, that we have not just words on a page, but a person, Jesus Christ, that we learn who lived among us. And we can watch him in the scriptures, can learn of him. Of course, the Holy Scriptures are precious to us. But let me just remind us that the scriptures, all the stories, all the poems, all the wisdom sayings, all the teachings, all the logical arguments, all of it is given to us, especially to capture a singular person, Christ Jesus, and to set him before us so that we learn Christ. If the Bible wants nothing more, it wants this, for you to know Christ. Start to finish, inside and out. His life is so remarkable and so consequential and so necessary for you and me that God is so kind to set up four video cameras. We call them the Gospels. And some of them are you know, regular motion. Some of them are slow motion. They're zooming in and they're zooming out. And why? So that we see Christ. The whole Bible is given to you to learn Christ. And what do we learn? What do we learn when we learn Christ? Well, Christ is a person of incredible contentment instead of greed, no doubt. He was satisfied with far less than any of us possess. His life is a life of spectacular wisdom instead of mental darkness. His life is bursting with hope instead of emptiness. But in this context, Paul, I think, wants us to see something more than that. When we learn Christ, what do we learn? It's this. Christ's life from virgin conception to bloody death is all about helping us throw off sin. Christ came because the world was under sin. The necessity of Christ is that you and I are unfortunately clothed in sin and need a way to get out. And so Paul says, this is what you've learned about Christ. Christ came to engage in a war on sin. Not a war against people, but to liberate people from our sin. And why would Paul have to argue this way? I mean, he's talking to the church. Of course you've learned Christ. Why would he have to argue this way? Well, one reason is that the culture is so powerful and so pervasive and so persuasive that we find resonance in our own heart with the broader culture. With the greed that is out there. Man, we can feel it. That's like our second language. Maybe even our first language. So to learn Christ is to follow Christ. To follow Christ is to enlist in this war against sin. It is to learn the habits of throwing off sin. Renewing my mind and putting on the new self. Friends, this is the Christian journey. This is the rest of life for so many of us. What should define our lives day in and day out is throwing off sin, renewing our mind, putting on the new self. It's funny, the culture tells us to throw something off too. The culture says, throw off restraint. It's way more fun. 
Throw off the old morals of traditional America, Southern life. Throw off caution itself. Throw it to the wind. Christ invites us to a life of incredible hope and joy by calling us to throw off our sin. It's incredible. I love how Paul reasons. Paul says the Gentile culture out there is hugely problematic. And then he does not say become a revolutionary, use your first amendment and protest against all the debauchery out there. He doesn't. He says, this is your pre-Christian past, and let's be honest, look in the mirror. This is your old nature. You can identify with this. This is your struggle. This is your battle. Paul says, throw it all off. It's true that Paul's image here is one of taking off old, dirty clothes and then putting on new clothes it's a helpful image. In a parallel passage, Paul will get a little bit more serious, it feels like, when he says, put to death your old nature, which is still not nearly as graphic as Jesus when he says, if your eye tempts you to sin, gouge it out. It's like that. That should be our view of sin. Even temptation to sin. If your hand tempts you to sin, cut it off. But what Paul is calling us to, to throw off our old sin, to renew our mind and to throw off, put on our new sin, is what Clinton Arnold says. In essence, Paul is calling us to an ongoing process of complete repentance. Paul is saying, dear Christian friend, I know you've been saved for a few decades. Hallelujah. That's fantastic. You have not arrived. There is still more sin to throw off. As a Christian, we need to hear this call again and again with seriousness and with urgency. Throw off your old self, or as we would say in the 21st century, go cold turkey. Throw off your old sin. I love that Paul says this. We need it. My heart needs it. My heart needs to see greed in areas of my life that is already there that I need to own up to, and throw off. The Christians have a knack. We have a knack to do a couple things. There's sort of two ditches. We hear Paul say, throw off your sin, and our response is, I'll pray about that. Friend, you don't have to pray about it. No, you know what God says. Throw it off. Yes, we should pray. Christians don't pray too much. We pray too little. Prayer is important. We should pray, lead us not into temptation right? We should pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Yes. When it comes to this, as the Spirit of God brings clarity to your mind about sin, whether it's greed or something else, throw it off. Um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in London in the 1900s, and he came to this text. He preached an entire sermon on this. The title of his sermon is, throw off your sin. Don't just pray about it. We need this. But there's a second ditch, unfortunately, that we fall into. The other ditch is, is perhaps even more dangerous. And it's this. We're all tempted to it. M managing my old nature. I'll keep it in check. I will be sure to not go too far. 
I'll take these sinful practices off and sort of hang them in the closet and wash them up a little bit until I want to wear them again. Paul says, dear Christian friend, when you learned Christ, and you came to know Christ, you enlisted in this battle against sin. And because of Christ's grace now, you can throw off sin. This is probably not new to too many, but here's a way to, to sort of summarize what it looks like to throw off sin. First of all, get really clear what sin is because culture has its vice and virtue lists. There are taboo things out there in culture. And sometimes culture gets it just right. Racism is evil. But it's not evil just because America has a checkered past with race. It does. It's evil because every last human being bears the image of God. Sometimes culture gets it right. Sometimes culture makes us sensitive to things that Jesus is like, nah, not that, that's not a big deal. There's another list of things. So get clear on what Scripture calls sin. Get ever so clear. And then confess. Confess every sin. Why hold back? The gospel, the cross of Christ provides this safest space imaginable to be so honest because at the end of the day, you're hiding nothing from God anyway. Confess it all. Run to Jesus with your sin. That's where we run. Run to Jesus, confess it, and then embrace Christ's forgiveness. He is always faithful. He is always just to forgive you of that thing. That thing, whatever that thing is. In a pastoral world, it's, it's funny because on occasion, somebody will come to me and say, God could never forgive me of this. And they're usually in tears or very anxious. And I get to say, with a huge smile on my face, yeah, no, that sin. Christ atones for that one. So run with your sin to Christ and confess it and repent. Repent from sin. This is the change. Making a plan to obey and to change. Filling in that old self with the new self. New practices, new habits. And then I can't commend this enough. Find true friends. Somebody to encourage you along the journey. Someone to ask you hard questions that you'll give permission to. To probe into your life and help you to see even blind spots. Everybody I know says, oh yeah, I've got blind spots. Most people are like, I don't want anybody to show me my blind spots, please. I'm doing fine. We need others. And then live free from sin. Walk in freedom. Don't give up. Keep walking in this freedom. Pursue a life of love and a life of holiness. This life of joy. This life of hope. This life of Christ. What Paul is saying is, dear brothers and sisters, follow Christ, not the rules of your culture. If you've learned Christ, you know this. Christ followers are sin throwing off people because of Christ's grace that he has showed to us. If you're in step with Christ, Paul reminds us, if you're in step with Christ, you're going to be out of step at places in your culture. So follow Christ. Don't let culture set the rules. Let Christ himself set the rules. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this word that you give to us. An incredible, still, necessary, 
and relevant word for us. And I ask, Lord, that you would speak its truth into our hearts and minds, that you would grow us. I know I speak for so many gathered here. This is their passion, to live free from greed and all of the sin that goes with it, to be throwing off sin, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, by your spirit, that you would give us extra grace, extra grace to be honest about the sin that we see in our lives, extra grace to be vulnerable in confessing it to you, extra grace to walk in forgiveness and freedom, to run after obedience and holiness, to chase after loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and money too, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord God, would you please cause this scripture by your spirit to bear great fruit for your honor and for your glory. In the name of Christ, I pray.